0: I think like many other people who arrived at Minnie Ripperton, I arrived to her through not even a song, but a particular portion of a song, which is the infamous note in Loving You. Even as a kid, I knew that her voice was doing something that the voices of other singers I had heard to that point were not doing. And so I was drawn to that song and I was drawn to the kind of sparse tenderness that ran through that song. Minnie Riperton died in the summer of 1979 and the album that came out after she passed it was a posthumous album that was in the fall of 1980 called Love Lives Forever and I think there's something interesting I've always been fascinated by how posthumous albums are fashioned and this one was kind of like an act of of surgery almost the producers pulled Ripperton's vocals from earlier tracks, tracks that maybe were for other albums that didn't make it, tracks that were backing tracks, and then they would kind of manufacture these duets. So you have songs like with Pilo Bryson and Roberta Flack. There's a song with Michael Jackson. There's a song with Stevie Wonder and Patrice Russian. And the, the way that I became most familiar with the Posthumous album as a form was through rap music. Right, where you know, Big L had a posthumous album, and of course, Tupac had a posthumous album. And in some ways, those projects aren't entirely different, where you're taking vocals and then a producer is breathing life into them. But it must be said that on Love Lives Forever, Minnie's actual vocal contributions are in some cases pretty sparse. And so there's this concept that she is kind of like a ghost hovering a- around her own music even hi I'm Hanifa Abdurraqib. I'm a poet and essayist and cultural critic from Columbus, Ohio. From KCRW, this is Lost Notes, 1980, Minnie Ripperton. In the spring of nineteen eighty, Producers set out to bring Minnie Ripperton back to life. They were armed with a disparate arrangement of pre-recorded vocals and a host of willing guest stars. She had died one year earlier, after a years-long battle of breast cancer. She had left behind scraps of recordings from past sessions. They weren't very cohesive, and under many other circumstances, they would have been disposed of. But producers had an idea. It would latch on to the waves of grief and sentimentality that had taken over after Minnie's passing. They knew they could put the vocals over new arrangements, call up some of Minnie's old friends and collaborators. And like that, there would be an album that sounded new. An album that might, if they were lucky, hit the charts with the ferocity that no Minnie album had before. A casual music fan may know Minnie Ripperton best not by a song, but by a song within a song. "Loving and You came out in 1974. At the three minute mark of that tune, a perfect piercing note unfolds over the bird song and the dream mic electric piano, a note arriving late in a song that felt like it had already done its work. <laughs> To get the magic of that note near the song's conclusion, it makes listening to the song feel like the slow unwrapping of a gift, undoing the ribbons and tearing off the paper before opening the box. The piano is played by Stevie Wonder. He produced the whole album, Perfect Angel, but he used a pseudonym, El Toro Negro. It was to avoid a contract dispute with his label, Motown Records. Some other casual fans may know Minnie Riperton best not by a song, but by her daughter, Maya Rudolph. Rudolph played in the studio as Riperton recorded "Loving You." Riperton sings her daughter's name repeatedly in a lullaby as the song fades away on the album version.
1: Maya,
0: Maya, 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 Maya. Maya, 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 Maya. Producers cut it from the single version worried that listeners might mistake the name for some kind of religious chant. Anything sung over and over again with enough determination and affection must be summoning a power not of this world. Loving You topped the American Pop Songs chart for one week in April 1975. Even now, I lean forward when I know the note is coming, as I did when I heard it the first time as a child, when I would be sitting on a couch lined with plastic during a hot summer pulled to the edge of the seat by the song, feeling the couch's hot plastic peel off the back of my shirt. If there is to be an artist known primarily for a single moment in a single song, it should be a moment that transforms the geography of its listeners, a moment that drags us back to a place where we maybe loved the world differently, or at least loved a part of the world so much that we wanted to sing its name endlessly, religiously. Perfect Angel sold slowly at first, but as Lovin' You began to rise up the charts, so did sales for the album.
1: Minnie Ripperton, Minnie Minnie Ripperton. Here is Minnie Ripperton.
0: You're beautiful, Minnie Ripperton. Ripperton went on American bandstand. She went on late night talk shows. She went on Soul Train and sang Lovin' You with a flower blooming out of her Afro and her eyes closed the entire time. By 1975, Epic Records was on board and eager for another album. Two people just meeting, barely touching each other. Two spirits greeting, trying to carry it further. But then came January of 1976. Minnie was given six months to live. By the time the breast cancer had been diagnosed, it had already metastasized. Minnie continued touring and recording. She was open with the public about her cancer, but didn't publicly share that she was terminally ill. In 1978, she starred in a breast cancer awareness commercial where she folded her hands over her chest while sitting at a piano.
1: My life was interrupted that abruptly. I got cancer, I lost a breast, but I saved the rest of my life and I've got that because I examined myself early. I found out in time and I got the help I needed from cancer specialists and the love I needed from the people I love.
0: A year later, her health began to visibly deteriorate.
1: I stumbled on this photograph, it kind of made me laugh, it took me way back.
0: In May 1979, Minnie was on stage at the Mike Douglas show. She was recording the song Memory Lane to promote her fifth album, Minnie. Her voice is as radiant as ever, but it was clear that she was struggling. She was upright, but clearly the toll of a long battle had worn her down. One hand holds the microphone while her other arm is entirely affixed to her side, unable to move. She is barely mobile, but for some enthusiastic swaying every now and then. Around the two minute mark of a song, her voice ascends to that familiar siren-like pitch and Minnie holds a note for as long as she can before leaning backwards into the purple lights of the stage. She pauses for a moment to let the instrumentation swell, and then she swings back into the note again, this time with slightly less volume, but just as much accuracy. During the broadcast of the show, the camera cut away from Minnie and showed the audience a brief montage of photos, various shots of Minnie in the arms of her husband, Richard Rudolph. When the camera returns to Minnie, It is at the exact moment where she is swinging her head back and forth and singing the lyric I don't want to go, which unlocks the song's final act, ending with Minnie almost pleading Save me, save me. She was confined to a hospital bed less than a month later, and was dead by July. She was 31 years old. The Mike Douglas performance haunts. It is a performance of a woman who is at the end of a fight she doesn't want to be at. Someone who is reaching for any possible way to stay alive. posthumous album is a tricky business. Sure, the music is in the hands of people who claim to know what the artist may have wanted, but there is no artist on the back end of that. There are no desires being laid out in real time. It is a tapestry of well-meaning guesses set to music. This is how Love Lives Forever was arrived at in 1980. Producers lifted Minnie's vocals from earlier tracks that she'd recorded in 1978 and 1979 in vocal sessions for previous albums. And then producers gave the tracks new arrangements, new musicians, and new vocalists to pair with Riverton. The posthumous album is also an exercise in sentimentality, to say, yes, how beautiful to hear Minnie's voice singing again, singing a song I'd never heard her sing before. Yes, there is a photo of Minnie's face on the cover, a half-smile, a perfectly arched eyebrow, two glistening earrings, a shot so close it feels like Minnie is with you, again, in the living world. there's that operatic high note on I'm in love again, unmistakable and twirling over a flute solo as it did in Loving You six years earlier. The problem, when dabbling in sentimental exercises of posthumous musical variety, is that it can't also feel like an attempt to cash in on the memory of a beloved artist. It can't feel crass or haphazard. On Love Lives Forever, even the guests can sometimes feel like ghosts, slotted in lazily to fill silences. At the end of the aforementioned I'm in love again, there is Michael Jackson, drifting through the background almost unnecessarily in a way that suggests his only purpose on the song is to have his name in the credits of the album. A Stevie Wonder harmonica solo, magic as it is, feel shoehorned into the song, Give Me Time. Sure, there are moments where it all clicks. The sprawling Here We Go, a seven-minute song that opens the album, where Peebo Bryson and Roberta Flack accent Minnie's vocals, carrying her on their shoulders instead of trying to make their own way or disappear into the background. You Take My Breath Away feels like a proper duet. George Benson taking his cues from Minnie as if she was in the room with him.
1: Hello, goodbye, aside.
0: Musically, the album feels rushed, a stapled-together effort that doesn't do justice to the already underappreciated vocal brilliance and dexterity of its central artist. When done right, a posthumous album is both a satisfying close to a life and an improvement on a legacy. Love Lives Forever comes out chaotic, restless, and easily forgettable. But in its final moment is the song of life, on which Minnie is joined by Patrice Russian. Russian and Ripperton's voices, when in harmony, sound almost indistinguishable. The song is simple. And joyful relying on a repetitive loop of la 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 come sing the song of life it is a kind of song sung by someone who once felt like they had a long life in front of them yes it is filled with cliches about touching stars and chasing dreams but it is the one song in on the album that brings forth the same emotions for me that minnie's final performance on the mike douglas show did the understanding that when she lived She had a vision for herself beyond her pain, beyond any illness, that she wanted to hold her children while reading them books, that she wanted to sit among a field of flowers, that she wanted to smile her unmistakable half-smile while looking up at the vast outer space. The four minutes of this final song are where the album's greatness rests, where it sits at the exact intersection of longing, joy, and unshakable grief. Many who fought endlessly and still left us too young, singing about the dreams of living, dreams that might seem simple to someone who doesn't know when they're going to die. When the song begins to fade, Ripperton's voice fading with it, when it becomes clear that this is it, the album is done, and so is our time with Minnie, when it becomes clear that she couldn't be saved and all we have left is a messy, haphazard attempt at forcing her beauty to linger, then a newer, brighter grief begins. This story was written and performed by me, Hanif Abdurraqib. The senior producer for Lost Notes is Mike dodge Weisskopf. The show's creator and executive producer is Nick White, He also edited this piece. KCRW's USC Luminary Fellow is Victoria Alejandro, and she provided production support for this series. Additional thanks on this episode to Sheila Simmons and Al Banks.
1: Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled.
0: This piece was informed in part by a conversation I had with Sheila Simmons, who is the author of Memoir of a Minnie Riperton Fan. Sheila was 9 in 1975 when she first heard Riperton's breakout hit Loving You. In 1999, she quit her job as a reporter for the Cleveland Plain Dealer to drive cross-country in search of Minnie's story. 30 years after she first encountered Minnie's music, she released Memoir of a Minnie Riperton Fan in July of 2005. It in preparation for my own story about Minnie I wanted to speak with Sheila about Minnie's life and enduring legacy. So the last album she made while living was 1979 Minnie and she was kind of all over the place. She was a spokesperson for the American Cancer Society at the time. Right. She had done some touring and she was very much out in front of the publicity cycle for that album and you know I mean even though that mm-hmm. album wasn't a huge success I mean mm-hmm. I think it did well enough, particularly because it was her first album on, on Capitol Records, and it seemed as though right. she was kind of poising herself. Uh, she was poised to have a big second half of whatever her career could be. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about the liveliness that she was demonstrating during the 1979 album cycle in the moment of Minnie's release. And Minnie came out May 9th in 1979, and you know, Minnie Ripperton was dead two months later.
1: Right. Now, most people might remember a hit song from that album, Memory Lane. Mm -hmm. Memory Lane was one of her bigger hits, particularly with the R&B crowd. And so at that time, she was performing on Soul Train. She was performing on Canadian television. At one point, she actually had her arm in a scarf. Her lymph nodes had swollen at the time, but she told audience members that it was a skiing accident. She really did not want people to know that the cancer had returned, that she was battling an illness. And she herself actually only wanted to be surrounded by people who talked about what she had to live for. She didn't actually like to be around people who expressed their fears And so when she was actually in the hospital, Minnie was still have she still had lots of friends visiting her. And one of the last people who came to see her was Stevie Wonder. And Minnie's death had caught him by such surprise that he had been writing a song called Minnie Get Well. The song hadn't even been completed. It was half done. And he just kind of came into the hospital room and sang it to her, the part that he did have. She went very quickly. She actually died, I think, a few days before Maya's birthday. And Maya even accepted an award in Minnie's name after Minnie had died. And she told the audience about how her mommy was a, a happy person and how that award would have made her very happy.
0: So I wanted to talk um, a little in depth about Loveless Forever because we lost Minnie in the middle of 1979 and then Loveless Forever didn't come out until the fall of 1980. And Mm -hmm. some of this was just because of the kind of tedious nature of crafting the album, you know, Mm -hmm. stripping the vocals, stripping some of her vocals from earlier tracks and then adding backing tracks and completing it with new musicians. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the process of making this album and kind of building out these duets in a way that I think we see often now when an artist dies. You know, I think it's a little more common to have these posthumous albums where other vocals are kind of tacked on to pre-existing vocals. But at the time, for Loveless Forever, it was kind of a, um, a new concept or a newer concept.
1: Right, and I think that the love that all of the musicians had for Minnie was what kind of drove that. Some of the songs had already been in the process of being recorded, so there was some reworking that they had to do, and yes, some of the stripping down the vocals and the music and the melodies, and then kind of putting it together, and some of it obviously putting it together without her. And then there were some songs that were written For her, in her name, Hugh Laws, a flutist who also played on Memory Lane, was also one of the artists on that album. He talked about um, one of the last times that he recorded with Minnie, the last time he saw her in recording studio, And he had actually been in the process of recording his own album and he had been up all night recording and he talked about coming into the studio and how he had just been exhausted and just a little moody and many had such an upbeat attitude. He was like, I can't believe that she was sick. I can't believe that she was dying because she made me feel like I should have more energy than I had. So she had very strong, intimate relationships with a lot of the people, the songwriters um, that she had. She was known to have a very down to earth, very pleasant personality. So I have heard people who did participate in the making of that is calling it a labor of love. What are your thoughts
0: in general on the making of an album when an artist is not alive to help guide the process? Is the end result easy to consume or is it, is it just kind of like we're succumbing to the greater good of getting to hear a person's voice one more time, even if that person isn't alive, to give a thumbs up on how their voice is used? When it comes down to the ethics of creating an album this way, even though you are a large Manny Ripperton fan, but in general, where do you come down on that?
1: I think a part of it is a sense of comfort. That it gives the fan that the music has not stopped, that love lives forever, and as so long as the music goes on, that your love for that artist goes on. And I think that posthumous album does kind of play that role artistically for that particular artist. I don't think that it necessarily ends up being the best product. Mm-hmm. But it does kind of elongate their relationship with their listeners. And an artist's relationship with their listener is intimate. So I don't in any way want to criticize it. And, you know, as long as good music comes out of it, I think it has its role.
0: I'm really oftentimes thinking about the various ways that artists are canonized when they die young. Mm-hmm. And it seems I've always felt like one of the large tragedies of Minnie Ripperton is that, you know, she's best kind of known for not only a single song, but a single note in a song. Right. I, I was so excited to uh, read your work on Minnie Ripperton and just kind of immerse myself in how mm-hmm. deep your relationship with the music went, because it reminded me of the relationships that a lot of particularly black folks in my life had with Minnie Ripperton when I was growing up. And one thing that's really bummed me out a little bit is to see her legacy kind of flattened to loving you, which of course is a great song. And, and I think not only is it a great song, but is a song, the mm-hmm. song that a lot of us came to her with, like a lot of us came to her mm-hmm. because of that song, but then a lot mm-hmm. of us chose to stay. Right. You know, I think about how diverse her career is. I think about stay in love and how mm-hmm. she kind of made, a little bit of a turn to disco and it still worked. Um, <laughs> and so I'm wondering what you mm-hmm. think Minnie Riperton's legacy is and what it could have been had she stayed with us.
1: Yeah, that's one of those questions that, that has always stayed with me is my obsession about Minnie is that due to the fact that she lived such a short life and seemed to die with at the cusp of such promise um, to be a superstar singer. Cause I always thought like no one, can hit the notes that she hit. No voice can exhibit the the purity. So there's just no one like her. And so I think because she's so unique and because her skills were so refined, I do think that she will continue to have a place in popular music, um, I do think that as we kind of get further away from our love affair of the sounds of the 70s, um, that some of that might go um, with it. But because there were so many different types of music styles, I always, I don't know, maybe I'm overly optimistic, but I keep thinking that um, more generations will continue to discover her or rediscover a part of her. And I think that's a lot for an artist's legacy.
0: That was Sheila Simmons, the author of Memoir of a Mini Ripperton Fan. This has been Lost Notes, 1980. Thank you for listening.